This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Tumor Lysis Syndrome by Dr. Andrew L. Hong. Hi, my name is Dr. Hong, and today I'm going to talk with you guys about tumor lysis syndrome as a part of our acute care curriculum. And so uh, today what we'll do is talk through what tumor lysis syndrome is and guide you guys through the management. Basics of tumor lysis syndrome. So let's take a moment and step back to think about what's going on here. Let's define what's happening. We have something called tumor lysis syndrome. So what is it? As its name implies, it's a syndrome when the tumor cells lice and the contents of the tumor cells are released. You probably remember back in medical school, uh, all the contents of what is in a cell. And you probably remember having to think about the concentrations of potassium uh, and thinking about DNA within the nucleus and so forth. And so, you know, now what we have to think about here is you have all these tumor cells breaking apart. And so the potassium in particular, the phosphorus, and then the DNA, which then will end up getting converted to uric acid, are all being released into the body. And these are being released at such a fast pace that the body can't really compensate. Laboratory and clinical findings. So with these cells all bursting, what would we actually see from a laboratory standpoint? We would see hyperkalemia, hyperphosphatemia, hyperuricemia, and hypocalcemia. So as you are thinking about these laboratory values, we need to think about how we're going to classify tumor lysis syndrome. We can classify them two ways. One is a laboratory tumor lysis syndrome, and the other is a clinical tumor lysis syndrome. So laboratory tumor lysis syndrome, that's when you have two or more laboratory values outside of the normal range. And most patients have some type of laboratory abnormalities. And so you know, the main thing you need to take a look at are really the trends that you're seeing. Uh, for example, if you had a patient who had a relatively high normal uric acid level of five, and then their next one is 5.5, you wouldn't really consider that that significant of an abnormality. But if you start to watch the trend of it went from 5 to 6 to 7 to 9, then that's definitely telling a different story. And so the reason why we want to address this early on is because these laboratory values can quickly translate into clinical tumor lysis syndrome. And worsening values usually herald the clinical complications. So the clinical complications that can arise from these abnormal laboratory values, unfortunately, can lead to multi-organ failure and sometimes death. So specifically, we can see from a neurologic standpoint, tetany and seizures secondary to the hypocalcemia. From a cardiac standpoint, as many of us keep thinking about hyperkalemia, you can have, unfortunately, cardiac arrest secondary to that. And finally, from a renal standpoint, from hyperuricemia and the elevated creatinine, we can get, unfortunately, uh, renal failure. Hydration. So now that we know what tumor lysis syndrome is, what do we actually do to try to prevent it? Most importantly, the first thing we do is hydration and hydration and hydration. One of the most important things that we need to do is assess the patient's fluid status. For the most part, patients actually come in uh, usually with uh, dehydration, decreased POs, uh, or decreased intake from nausea vomiting. Uh, and so patients are usually on the drier side. 
uh, but very uh, rarely you do see large accumulations of fluid in the abdomen or in the lungs, uh, for which we have to be a bit more cautious about hydration. Along with dehydration, uh, if we combine that with the hyperuricemia, we can really potentiate acute kidney injury, and this is likely what's driving the elevated creatinine. So as I'm, as I'm alluding to, hydration is a keystone in tumor lysis management. There are a lot of debates if you look into the literature as to whether or not we need to alkalinize the fluids or not. From a physiologic standpoint, urine alkalinization has been used to increase the urine pH and increase the solubility of uric acid. At the same time, increases in the urine pH also decreases the calcium phosphate solubility, which may lead to precipitation. And every institution has their own standards. And what I can say is there's not a clear answer today as to if we need to alkalinize or not. Uh, but at the end of the day, hydration is the more pertinent thing. So usually our goals are to hydrate as much as possible and as much as the patient will tolerate. So what does that mean? That usually means hydrating at two times maintenance. And most importantly here is to give maintenance fluids without potassium. As I mentioned earlier, one of the complications from your tumor cells lysing is the elevation of potassium. And so we want to make sure we're using fluids that don't have potassium. As you're hydrating the patient, the next things you'll want to do is continue to monitor the urine output closely and continue to examine the patient on a regular basis. And you're there, what you're looking for are signs of fluid overload, as this can happen rarely. And uh, here, we're monitoring the patient's fluid status. We want to make sure that they're being hyperhydrated without developing signs of fluid overload. And how do we do that? We can measure their urine output. We can monitor changes in their creatinine. And remember, in kids, creatinine levels actually vary quite a bit. And so unlike adults where we think a creatinine of you know, 0.8 or 1 is normal, for a young child, a creatinine of 0.8 to 1 is potentially triple of what they should be. And so trying to remember what their baseline is. And just as reference, young children usually have creatinines less than 0.5. And then as they age, the creatinine starts to go up a little bit. But if we see a doubling of their baseline creatinine, that is a concerning sign uh, and one that we need to uh, think closely about uh, getting our nephrologists involved. Management of hyperuricemia. Next, what we need to do is start to work on the uric acid. Uh, so as I mentioned earlier, with the hyperuricemia plus dehydration, we can potentiate acute kidney injury. And especially as we think about starting any types of chemotherapy or if the patients are getting chemotherapy, we need to try to keep the kidneys happy as we do depend on renal excretion for a lot of chemotherapy. So two ways that we can manage the, uh, uric acid levels, uh, and I'll go through them uh, in a bit more detail now, are by giving two different uh, medications. The first is allopurinol. This is a classic compound that we have used for management for many decades. It's inexpensive and relatively well tolerated. The second option is raspiricase. This is a relatively more novel compound and uh, one that can quickly drop one's uric acid level. One of the things to know is that this can cause hemolytic anemia in patients with G6PD deficiency. If they are G6PD deficient, then we would withhold respiracase and focus on using allopurinol and hydration to manage the hyperuricemia. With respect to raspiricase, the moment we give this drug to a patient, as you're checking follow-up levels for uric acid, 
what's important here is that the enzyme continues to be active. And so when you draw blood, we need to make sure it remains on ice to inactivate the enzyme. If it's held at room temperature or any warmer, the enzyme will continue to break down the uric acid. And so you'll have a falsely low level. And this is especially important in your early stages of therapy where you're trying to monitor whether or not you need to give additional doses of respiracase or not. So let's take a brief review of the mechanisms of action of uh, working with allopurinol respiracase. So as I mentioned earlier, as the DNA is being broken down, that's getting converted into all your different nucleic acids. And so from there, uh, the purines in particular will be broken down into hypoxanthine, and from hypoxanthine to xanthine, and then to uric acid. And so it's during this phase here, going from hypoxanthine to xanthine to uric acid, for which we can use uh, um, a medication called allopurinol. It acts on xanthine oxidase, uh, which then prevents formation of uric acid. So respiracase works differently. It actually works downstream of all this, and it actually converts uric acid into allantoin. And so uh, we need to think about using these drugs differently, and most importantly, we don't use them in combination. As you're managing hyperuricemia with allopurinol, if we continue to see rapid rises in uric acid levels while on allopurinol, we can consider either monitoring closely or consider switching over to respiracase if the patient is G6PD normal. Management of hyperkalemia. The next electrolyte abnormality that we can think about is hyperkalemia. So why is this important? Going back to medical school and to your cardiology rotation, as you can imagine, hyperkalemia can lead to T-waves and to cardiac arrest. And so we'd like to definitely avoid that. And so what can we do? Uh, we can split this up into non-emergent treatments as well as emergent treatments. Importantly, we should have our patient on continuous cardiac monitoring during this time. So if we see a slightly elevated potassium level, we can start a medication like K-exalate. And this basically will take up and remove potassium from uh, the food that's being eaten, and then hopefully decrease the potassium that way. And secondarily, we can give hyperhydration. Uh, in an urgent situation where your potassium is quite elevated, we need to start thinking quick on our feet. Here, we would potentially give calcium gluconate, nebulized albuterol, insulin glucose, and consult our cardiologist. Dialysis may be administered in the emergent setting, but this would be in consultation with our nephrology and surgical teams. Management of hyperphosphatemia and hypocalcemia. We've now gone through hyperkalemia, hyperuricemia, and fluid status. Now we can start to take a look at other metabolic derangements that can occur with tumor lysis syndrome. One of those is hyperphosphatemia. Unfortunately, this is difficult to manage as we don't have good treatments for managing hyperphosphatemia. We can use aluminum hydroxide, which is a phosphate binder. This is not well tolerated as it usually has to be given orally and it doesn't taste good. Furthermore, it's slow to act. Newer agents, such as savelomir, are being used as well, depending on the hospital you are at. And then on the flip side of hyperphosphatemia, we have hypocalcemia. Serum calcium levels are usually low secondary to hyperphosphatemia, and calcium phosphate crystals then develop in the renal tubules, thereby sequestering the calcium and causing levels to be low. Here, what we want to think about is whether or not the patient's actually symptomatic or not, uh, and if there are clinical signs of any neuromuscular abnormalities. Furthermore, uh, we can take a look at an EKG to look for signs of uh, hypocalcemia. 
if we are seeing changes in the EKG, we should look at the electrolytes as many EKG changes can result from electrolyte abnormalities stemming from tumor lysis syndrome. For example, QT prolongation can be seen in the case of hypocalcemia. If the calcium is very low, I would recommend checking ionized calcium. This way, we can ensure that the calcium levels are truly low, and if that's the case, we can give calcium gluconate urgently via the central line. But ideally, if you've caught tumor lysis syndrome early, the calcium levels will just be slightly low, and we can give oral calcium, which is also a good gut protectant. The important thing to know is that sometimes the calcium and phosphate can interact and form crystals due to the calcium phosphate product. Patients with severe symptoms of hypocalcemia should be treated irregardless of phosphate level. However, most patients should have their hypophosphatemia corrected prior to calcium supplementation to avoid the calcium phosphate precipitation. And so, when we provide IV calcium to a patient, we usually want to ensure that they are deficient. So, which patients would I worry most about tumor lysis syndrome? Fortunately, cancer uh, and tumor lysis syndrome are not totally hand-in-hand. -hand. There are certain cancers that are high predisposition for developing tumor lysis syndrome and others that don't. Primarily, hematologic malignancies are the ones that are a high risk for tumor lysis syndrome, uh, but in certain other types of high tumor burden, high turnover cancers, we can see that as well. So let's go through a little bit more of the specifics. The groups that we worry most about, as I mentioned earlier, within our hematologic malignancies or blood disorders, those with leukemias, particularly those with high white counts, and those with lymphomas, uh, and, and, and there, there are two types I want you to remember. T-cell lymphomas, uh, especially those with a medial stinal mass, and Burkitt's lymphoma. And for the less well-known groups, those that can potentiate tumor lysis syndrome, germ cell tumors, neuroblastomas, and those that are quite bulky in nature. At what point do we worry about tumor lysis syndrome? Fortunately, there's no uh, good answer to this other than we always worry mostly right before we start any chemotherapy, especially if there's high tumor burden. And as we mentioned earlier, there's a high turnover of cells. The high level of turnover within some of these cancer cells leads to the accumulation of the metabolites and subsequent end organ damage. And then during the usually the first cycle of therapy, which we usually call induction therapy, usually we see effects uh, in our leukemia patients of tumor lysis syndrome within the first two weeks of induction therapy. And this is more because at this point is, is the highest tumor burden for any patient with leukemia. And so as we're lysing the cells with induction therapy, these cells are being broken down. It's during these time frames that we worry most about tumor lysis syndrome. As I mentioned earlier, uh, for those at highest risk, we actually talk about using a pre-phase course of chemotherapy to gently lyse the cells. And that way it lets the clinicians have some time to minimize risk uh, and employ other preventative measures to also minimize risk to the patient. Even with prevention, there are some patients that continue to have signs of tumor lysis syndromes. What does one do? The first question we need to ask ourselves are, how severe is this tumor lysis syndrome? If it's something where the lab values are changing mildly and the patient's not having any clinical signs of tumor lysis syndrome, we can usually manage that within our own group. But as 
you know, as we start to look at the creatinine levels, if those are starting to rise significantly and it's not improving even with hydration, initiation of uh, our allopurinol or a respiracase, then we need to involve our nephrologists. And the reason for this is there might be an urgent need for dialysis. As mentioned earlier, the initial uh, uh, dehydration plus the possibility of hyperuricemia can lead to end organ failure, in particular with your kidneys. And then with respect to electrolyte changes, especially if the potassium is quite elevated and we're having difficulty managing that, and especially if we're seeing peaked T waves, then we need to involve our cardiologists. Finally, if we're needing a number of interventions that require a lot of nursing care and close monitoring, it may make more sense to involve our intensive care unit colleagues. This way, labs can be drawn as often as every hour. Furthermore, in the ICU, there can be more frequent evaluations and interventions as needed. This will decrease the risk of progression to significant tumor lysis syndrome. Case studies. So you have a patient who comes in with newly diagnosed Burkitt's lymphoma. Uh, the patient was transferred from an outside emergency room to our oncology service. And the nurse pages you uh, with the first set of labs that come in from the emergency room. And you get a potassium of 4.12, creatinine of 1.7, calcium of 8.9, phosphorus of 6.9, magnesium 2.2, a uric acid of 16.3, and an LDH of 3,050. So the first question is, you know, what's on your differential? And before we even get to that, I think we need to ask ourselves, what is abnormal? So looking at the list and what I just mentioned, the creatinine seems to be high. It's at 1.7. The phosphorus also seems to be elevated at 6.9. Uric acid definitely is very elevated at 16.3. Aside from uric acid leading to nephrotoxicity and acute kidney injury, Precursors to uric acid can also be nephrotoxic. And at LDH, uh, as you can imagine, we usually live in an LDH of somewhere below 300. It's about tenfold higher at 3,050. So what could this be? Acute kidney injury can definitely cause an elevated creatinine, and it can also cause an elevation in your uric acid levels. But in our situation here, we have a patient with a uric acid of 16.3, and cases of acute kidney injury associated with hyperuricemia, we don't see levels this high. Uh, and so then if you add on this LDH, which is tenfold higher than the normal range, uh, we should really be thinking about tumor lysis syndrome as the top things on our differential. So what do we do next? We take a look back at our sign out, double check, and we see that this patient is a 12-year-old girl. Uh, she's Caucasian. Uh, she was just diagnosed with Burkitt's lymphoma. And interestingly enough, chemotherapy hasn't started yet. Uh, there are certain types of cancer which uh, the cells die off on their own at a pretty high rate, uh, including Burkitt's lymphoma. And so patients will come in with tumor lysis syndrome. Uh, sometimes it's the initiation of chemotherapy, which will cause the tumor lysis syndrome. So you need to make sure you keep that in mind, even on patients where chemotherapy has not been started. We are also notified by the emergency room that the G6PD status is still pending. We talked to our laboratory and they say uh, they're running it and hopefully it'll be back in the next couple hours. Uh, and uh, looking more at your sign out, you see the, that the patient's history is otherwise pretty much unremarkable and that she's been healthy and has not been on any medications that could potentiate acute kidney injury or any other illnesses. So we have a patient with Burkitt's lymphoma. We have signs that all point to tumor lysis syndrome. What's our next step? 
because tumor lysis can go rapidly from laboratory-based changes to clinical tumor lysis syndrome, uh, we need to ask the nurse for a couple things, and we also need to evaluate the patient. Uh, so as you're getting ready to evaluate the patient, you can ask the nurse for a set of vital signs as well as getting a sense of urine output. Asking the nurse to get vital signs and urine output, we need to see the patient. It's very important because once we've moved into the state where we have changes in the clinical exam, we need to start acting much more rapidly uh, in the situation that things get much worse. And, uh, and unfortunately, with tumor lysis syndrome, patients have died from complications secondary to that. And so when you go to see the patient, we examine the patient uh, to determine their fluid status. And based on our physical exam, and we'll go through some of these things in a few moments, uh, we would talk with our oncology fellow to figure out what the next best step is. So what would we look for on uh, a patient's exam? We have a couple things that we can take a look for. First thing is signs for tetany. To assess potential effects of electrolyte derangements from tumor lysis syndrome, we can first see if a patient is on a monitor and then look for signs of elevated or peak T waves, which may be a sign of hyperkalemia. And then finally, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, with the elevated creatinine status, we need to take a look at the fluid status as well, given that the kidneys can be affected uh, in tumor lysis syndrome. And as a result, patients will accumulate fluid uh, quite quickly. Okay. Now that we've assessed the initial vital signs, we've done a physical exam we need to talk with the family and the patient. So since they're awake, we can ask a, a few questions of them. First, we should confirm with them that there is no history of kidney disease, uh, that they have both kidneys. Every so often, you do get surprised. Some patients do end up having uh, a kidney that is removed, and patients just don't think about it, or families don't really think about it till you ask them. And then importantly, our cardiac issues. Uh, here, you want to make sure you go through any issues at birth, uh, and if there's been any need to see a cardiologist in the past, fainting issues, or any problems in maintaining certain electrolytes. Finally, you want to ask about seizure uh, history. Uh, this could be as simple as febrile seizures when they're a young age, or this could be an underlying seizure disorder of which this patient has already been treated with some anti-epileptic, and we just need to be aware of that. As you continue to talk with the patient and family about these issues, you should continue to look at the monitors, assess for elevated or peak T waves or prolonged QT, and any other signs of tetany. Tetany is hyperexcitability of the peripheral neurons. This is seen by perioral or acral paresthesias and motor symptoms that include stiffness and muscle spasms. Two signs that can be seen are, one, Trousseau sign, which is a carpal pedal spasm, aka a hand and wrist spasm, or two, Trivex sign, which is a ipsilateral contraction of the facial muscles following tapping the facial nerve. And if these physical exam findings are present, you should repeat a Chem 10 stat. You also want to place a patient on a 12-lead EKG monitor. And most importantly, once you have these pieces of information, talk with your fellow and potentially the ICU, depending on how your patient presents. Uh, one can definitely quickly go from having some abnormal electrolytes to having uh, significant clinical exam findings and then needing ICU-level care. If the patient has severe hypocalcemia, as evident by a low ionized calcium, then repletion with IV electrolytes is needed. For patients with severe hyperkalemia, treatment with IV calcium, insulin, and glucose are your more immediate therapies with 
potential use of dialysis and the use of diuretics to enhance potassium removal as your next set of immediate therapies. Of note, for hypokalemia, we ask that for patients with tumor lysis syndrome to not replete this without discussion with your fellow and your attending. And so what, what are the things that we can do and propose uh, when we talk to the oncology fellow? Uh, she had lots of signs of laboratory tumor lysis syndrome. So in this situation here, because the patient's not showing any clinical signs of tumor lysis, we can simply make sure that we've initiated good hydration, that we start some type of uh, uric acid uh, management, whether that be allopurinol or raspiricase. As I mentioned earlier, this patient is Caucasian, and there are a percentage of Caucasians who are G6PD abnormal. So it's important that you wait for the G6PD testing before you consider giving raspiricase. Especially in a patient who's otherwise healthy, hydration goes quite a long way and can actually start to bring down the uric acid levels without even initiating allopurinol or respiricase. And so once we get the G6PD status back, if the patient's uric acid level is still quite elevated and continuing to rise, then we can consider giving a dose of respiricase. So the next scenario I'd like to present to you is a 17-year-old young man with T-cell leukemia and a uh, presenting white count of 150,000 who just started treatment. So he's now six days into treatment when the resident at the end of the day uh, moves uh, the tumor lysis labs from every six hours to every 12 hours, thinking that the patient's stable. So the last set of labs that you had were at 10 a.m. and the nurses were looking at their watches and noticed it was already 7 p.m. sign out uh, and saw that the orders were changed. And so at that point, um, the nurses give you a quick page uh, to find out, you know, is this really what you wanted or not? Uh, and uh, that usually um, we would want to keep these at every six hour labs for the time being, given how early it is in one's therapy. And so you talk with the fellow and you confirm with the fellow that indeed we do need to go back to every six hour labs. And so based on that conversation, you order the lab stat uh, and then you go to evaluate the patient while the labs are being run. As you're evaluating the patient, you notice that the patient hasn't been feeling very well over the last couple of hours, and he was just tired of having all the, the leads on his chest and was tired of listening to the monitor go off. Uh, and so he just took himself off uh, all monitors. And not only that, but he seems pretty uncomfortable when you look at him, and uh, when you do the physical exam, you notice a positive Trousseau sign. As a clinical assistant comes in the room to put the patient back on the monitor, you notice prolongation of the QT interval. Multiple pages start coming in at the same time. These state that the patient has abnormal vital signs, abnormal physical exam, as well as abnormal lab studies. After getting the pages, you go and look uh, at the patient's chart and you look up what the values are. And you notice, for the most part, you have many normal labs uh, at 10 a.m. For example, the calcium was at 7.8, creatinine was 1, uric acid was 1.1. It's now 8 p.m., and you've now repeated these labs. And what you see is you have a sodium of 135, a potassium that is 6.46, a chloride of 101, a CO2 of 22, glucose of 123, a creatinine uh, that has now doubled to 2, a calcium of 6, phosphorus of 7.6, and uric acid of 11.3. And so now with all these abnormal labs coming in, uh, compared to where the patient was at 10 a.m., you're getting now multiple pages from uh, the nurses giving concern of how the patient looks as well as all these laboratory values. Most important thing is take a breath and 
start communicating up the chain. We have time, and most importantly is we now have the set of labs that now can help us figure out what we need to do next to help keep this kid hopefully from going to the ICU or getting to the ICU in time so that we don't need to have a lot of significant interventions. So since you've already evaluated the patient, you can tell the fellow that the patient has definitely moved from having laboratory criteria of tumor lysis syndrome to having clinical criteria of tumor lysis syndrome. You'll talk with the patient's nurse and the charge nurse so that you can get more hands in the room because the potassium that's now over six, along with the creatinine that has now doubled, is putting the patient at risk for cardiac arrhythmia and renal injury. And so what we would like to do next is, as you're getting more people into the room to help you take care of this patient, make sure you get them on continuous monitoring. We need to make sure we touch base with the fellow and make sure they're aware of all these new changes. The fellow will then touch base with the attending. And if importantly, if the fellow doesn't respond in five or 10 minutes, call the attending. This is a high enough urgent issue that you need to get help from more senior uh, physicians uh, to help you out here. And then uh, I would also recommend talking with the ICU for urgent consult and likely transfer. And so what would we do next? We need to start some therapies. What we've done thus far is communicate up the chain, make sure that everybody's aware of all these changes, that the patient uh, is having a clinical manifestations of tumor lysis syndrome, has laboratory values consistent with tumor lysis syndrome, uh, but we need to make some medical interventions. So for our second patient, we now know that this patient is in clinical tumor lysis syndrome, and here we need to get more hands on deck. And as I've mentioned earlier on, we would you know, call our fellow, call the ICU, get nursing involved, but what can we do immediately for this patient? As we've already talked about, this patient has tr a trousseau sign as well as hyperkalemia and has elevated creatinine along with the elevated uric acid. And so most importantly, if the patient's able to tolerate things, we need to give fluids and we need to start to replace the critical electrolytes that are missing as well as figure out ways to decrease the ones that are too high. So just to remind ourselves, here we can give fluid that does not contain potassium. Second, what we need to do is replace the calcium that's being lost that's likely causing the tetany. And then also a secondary gain of this is this will also help uh, with managing the hyperkalemia so we can give a calcium gluconate bolus. Third, we need to start to manage the high levels of potassium in the system. So in addition to giving the calcium gluconate, we can also start to intervene by using what we had already been giving, the hyperhydration. And so as you can see here is hydration, hydration, and hydration are really the key points here. All the other uh, interventions uh, will come secondarily, and you can start to add those into your therapies as you're talking with your ICU fellow as, and as well as with the oncologist. Thank you very much for watching. I hope you now have a better understanding of what tumor lysis is and how we can manage that in, a, in the hospital setting. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.